0: Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 23. And we're going to read through to Mark chapter 3, verse 12. This is God's word. One Sabbath, he, that was Jesus, was going through the cornfields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck ears of corn. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, So that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. This is God's word. Uh, For those of you who've been with us over the last few months, you might remember, very vaguely, uh, that we started to work through Mark's gospel together, maybe back in October, Last year, and so we did a few months. Uh, the first chapter and a bit of, of Mark, Mark's Gospel, uh, and then we, we we stopped it because of Christmas. And then uh, during our sort of third lockdown, I suppose we, um, we we were working through some Psalms that were very helpful and poignant, moment, uh, moment meaningful for us. But now we're, we're back into um, Mark again, and uh, I'm going to just uh, listen to what the Bible teaches about Jesus and followers of Jesus. <clears throat> um, just. Hopefully this, this message is, is going to be a bit of a reminder and uh, a reinforcement for you. Uh, don't forget that the, the Gospel of Mark that we have learning from some time ago presents Jesus um, as the Son of God, and Jesus at the beginning of his ministry was filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he went out preaching and he said, the kingdom of heaven has come near. repent and believe the good news. And that that sort of theme tune, I suppose, underpinned all of what Jesus said and all of what Jesus did. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Uh, you know, it's here for you. It's come near. Receive it, and you do that through through turning to Him in your heart and, and and opening your heart, as we were saying, to 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 me and to what I'm teaching and doing. And it says there at the beginning of Mark's gospel that when the crowds heard Jesus' voice, when they heard Him preach and, and teach, they were astonished. It says because He was. Uh, speaking as one who had authority, not like the scribes and religious leaders. A- and um, as we were coming into chapter two then, we started to see Jesus clashing with those scribes and religious authorities, those who had much to lose by his coming. A- and so um, what we're doing today is kind of parachuting into the middle of these various skirmishes uh, between Jesus and the religious establishment. Um, and uh, in our last message way back in, in uh, November or maybe the beginning of December, uh, Jesus explained this clash between him and the religious leaders by using uh, the metaphor of new wine and old wineskins. And he said, what, what I'm bringing, the teaching uh, that, that I have, the kingdom of God, that is the new wine. It is fresh, it is wonderful, it, it, it speaks of God's blessing and presence among you. And yet he says there are many who resemble the old wineskins. They, they're, they're, they're old, they're rigid, they're inflexible, and when you put the new wine into the old wineskins, the old wineskins burst, uh, they're destroyed, uh, they wreck the new wine. And so Jesus uses this sort of uh, this symbolism, this metaphor, to show what's happening between the new wine of the kingdom and, and, and those who are unwilling, un, unprepared, rigid and inflexible, who don't, don't want to receive it. And so today we're going to see an example of this ongoing clash, this clash of two kingdoms, if you like, the new wine and the old wineskins. So we're going to see here, we're going to um, sort of work through this in three, three uh, sections, three points. The first we'll see is that Jesus speaks an authoritative word. All right, I know you know that, but, but we, we, need to, we need to believe that. He speaks an authoritative word. Number two, we see Jesus possesses an authoritative power. All right, and number three, Jesus evokes hostility or hunger. You know, these two reactions to his authoritative word and his authoritative power. And if you are sitting this morning and you're, you're colouring in uh, some of your sheets, uh, you'll see hopefully, your mum and dad can show you, uh, one of the sheets is a picture of Jesus healing the people. And we're going to read about that. And one of the pictures uh, is a picture of Jesus teaching the people. And that's what Jesus did a lot of during his days. healed people and he taught them about God. So that's what you're doing when you're, when you're colouring. Good. So number one, Jesus speaks an authoritative word. And we see that in verses 23 through to 28. Uh, And the setting is clear from the outset. This is the Sabbath, and this is significant. All this stuff takes place on the Sabbath day. As you may be familiar with that term, the Sabbath day was the day of rest. It was enshrined in the Ten Commandments, right? The Fourth Commandments. Uh, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, said God. To Israel through Moses, all those years ago. Remember it. Keep it holy. Keep it special. On that day, he says, "You'll do no work, so that you can remember me and enjoy me." That's what Sabbath was all about. But yet, we see Jesus together with his friends, uh, the disciples, and they were obviously wandering around, going from one place to another, going through the cornfields. It says, and 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 some of the disciples probably as they were just going along, just reached out through the cornfields and plucked a few ears of corn. And, and you can sort of rub it and get a bit of the uh, husk out and you can eat that just as a, like a little snack. Uh, <clears throat> maybe if you're out for a walk as a family or, or what have you, um, you, might, you might reach out and maybe grab some wild you know, blackberries or something like that and eat them on the raspberries on the... I don't know, do you get wild raspberries? Wild blackberries anyway. And Mark's nodding. And um, you might eat those. A similar sort of thing. You might just pick one or two and it's kind of a fun thing to do. So that's probably what, what was going on here. They weren't threshing corn in order to make bread. They were just picking up uh, a few ears of corn. But it says there that suddenly appears these Pharisees, obviously hiding or or waiting or sort of following them from afar, just waiting to pounce on Jesus and and find something against him. And if they couldn't find something against him, they could maybe find something against his followers, his disciples. They wanted to skewer him. And so they had a great, as they thought, a great opportunity to do that. Look, said the Pharisees in verse 24, what they're doing is not lawful. They're breaking the law. Is this what happens when you follow Jesus? You start disobeying God. That's what the Pharisees were trying to get Jesus with. Now, if you, if you examine the Old Testament, uh, referred to as the Torah, um, which means the teaching the instruction, plucking corn on the Sabbath is nowhere prohibited in the law of God. So what are, the what are the Pharisees on about when they say, look, what they're doing is not lawful? Well, what they're likely referring to are the traditions of the elders, uh, the traditions of the Pharisees that gathered over many years, many generations. And they were often, uh, they weren't written down or anything. They were sort of communicated uh, by voice, orally, And uh, the idea with these traditions were to sort of support the law of God, you know, to sort of uh, interpret the law of God. And so over the years, these things gathered and gathered and gathered, and the laws and sort of the the, the traditions grew and grew and grew, um, all about trying to interpret and sort of enshrine uh, the law of God, so to speak. I've actually got here um, a a writing from around the time of Jesus. Um, It was written by uh, some... uh, scholars um, writing down the oral traditions of the Pharisees. And I'm going to read this to you. This is what it looks like, by the way. It's quite a lot of writing. But I'm just going to read it to you quickly. This is called Mishnah Shabbat. And this is the the writing of the oral tradition of the Pharisees that's been written down a generation or two just after Jesus, just to give you an idea of the kind of thing. And the idea with this, I'm just about to read you, is it shows um, how the Pharisees understood work. Okay, so we all believe and agree the fourth commandment: "You shall not work on the on the Sabbath." Right, but this is what they did: they took that and then they added this to it. And so they're trying to describe what work is. Just so you know, right? Uh, And here is thirty-nine different forms of work that were prohibited by the Pharisees over the years. Here, I'm going to quickly read them too. Number one: sowing uh, seeds. That is number two: ploughing. Uh, Number three, reaping. Number four, gathering sheaves. Number five, threshing those sheaves. Number six, winnowing um, by throwing stalks with a pitchfork into the wind. Number seven, sorting inedibles from edibles by hand or via a sieve. That's possibly what the uh, disciples were doing. Number eight, grinding. Number nine, sifting, kneading, baking, bleaching, combing wool, dyeing wool, spinning wool, mounting the threads onto the looms, uh, blah, 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 blah. It goes on. Slaughtering animals, skinning animals, salting the animals, tanning the animals, scraping it of its hair, cutting it up into strips necessary uh, for straps, for sandals. Number 32, writing letters. Number 33, erasing in order to write two letters, building, pulling down, extinguishing a fire that was put together to create charcoal, kindling, striking the finishing blow with a hammer. And number 39, carrying things from one domain to another. These are the 40 primary, cat- primary categories of labor, less one. Gives you a rough idea of the kind of details that the Pharisees operated with. And so if you broke one of those traditions, they would think it's akin to breaking the law of God. And so they saw the disciples rubbing a bit of, uh, you know, um, ears of corn in their hands and, and eating them. and said, aha, that's work. You've just broken the law of God. So that's the kind of uh, discussion that is unfolding in these pages here. So what does Jesus say? How does he respond? Well, he responds brilliantly, amazingly. If it was me, I would probably sort of be saying, although those traditions, they're silly, you know, they're not from God, all that stuff. But Jesus doesn't say that at all. He says to them in verse uh, 26, or 25 and 26, have you never read the Bible um, to the Pharisees? Have you never read the Bible? Have you never read the story of David? he said, which is ironic because, of course, the Pharisees, they're, they're, they're the top when it comes to reading and, and understanding the law. Have you never read the story of David, King David, before he was um, the king? Uh, he was on the run from Saul, and the scenario that, that, that Jesus talks about here is from 1 Samuel 21. David, Young David was on the run from Saul, and he was starving as he, as he fled for his life, and he found the, the priest of the Lord. And the priest um, was looking after the, 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 the tabernacle and, and all that. <clears throat> and so uh, David came along and said to the priest, look, I'm starving. My men are starving. Give us something to eat. And the priest said, the only thing I've got is the, what they call the bread of the presence, this special, holy, ceremonial bread that gets baked every day and placed in the presence of the Lord. That's the only thing I've got. And the priest said to David in 1 Samuel 21, you can have that bread. It's okay. And so David, it says, took and eat, and he gave it to those who were with him. And the point here that Jesus is making here is that David was never condemned for that action, for taking the holy bread, the thing that only priests were allowed to eat. David was never condemned for that. His actions were considered to be good. His actions were, were considered to be worthy. And Jesus' point with all this is that, look, you Pharisees have got it all wrong. Everything's upside down in your system. you uh, you the laws are here to serve people, says Jesus, in effect, not the other way around. He says that in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He, he said to the Pharisees, look, you, you're a slave to these laws. You're, you're, you're unthinking in your adherence to those laws. They're there for our goods. They're there to bring you life. Uh, they're there for you to have joy as you follow God. That's what the law of God is there for. It shows you how to live for God, to enjoy his pleasure, but yet somehow or other, throughout the ages and over the generations, the Pharisees and them, like, those like them had managed to invert the system upside down. They took these laws and thought to themselves, if we could just obey them, then God will be happy with us. If we could just get all this right, then his kingdom will come. So subtle, and yet they'd flipped it upside down. Uh, the Pharisees had built their lives and their identities around knowing and debating and and, and living out all of these laws and traditions to the nth degree. And here we have this clash with Jesus, the new wine and the old wineskins, and he simply demolishes the system in a few easy words. But before he moves on, before this episode is over, he leaves a bombshell, or we might say he a mic drop, at the end of his little ding-dong. In verse 28, it says here, the Son of Man, that's Jesus' word for himself, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. There were already red faces, angry people who couldn't respond to Jesus' argument from the Scriptures. They'd already been outmaneuvered, and yet Jesus goes a step further here. Not only does he say that the Pharisees are wrong, but he says, I stand over the law that you people think you know all about. I'm Lord even of the Sabbath. And who can stand over the law except God himself? Right? So in our first little scenario here, we see Jesus speaks an authoritative word. But secondly, we'll see in the next section as we move down, Jesus possesses authoritative power. Okay, So it's not just in his teaching, it's in his power as well. And The, the scene shifts as we go into verse 1 of chapter 3. Uh, the, we're still in the, the Sabbath day, possibly the same Sabbath, we're not sure. Um, but we've gone from the cornfields out there um, to the synagogue, the place of worship. Um, similar to the local church, I suppose. Little gatherings of, of, of people coming together to sing, to hear God's word and to pray and all that. And it says there that a man was there with a withered hand, um, possibly had that from birth, just born with a deformity of his hand, which um, was bad, let's face it, for, for anybody. But particularly in that society, in that age, uh, um, hands were super important because you needed them to work, you needed them to, to, you know, to work the land. Um, this is a very sort of agrarian society that made, made most of their living off of the land, either through farming or through crops or what have you. And if you couldn't pick up your, your, your rake or you couldn't sow the seed or you, know, you couldn't handle the cattle, then you can't eat, you can't bring in food, you can't supply for your family. And so this is a man who is severely uh, disabled physically but also um, socially. Anyway, he was in, um, in the synagogue. Maybe he was sort of brought in by the Pharisees just to see. But either way, it turns out this was a bit of a setup. They watched Jesus, it says in verse 2, to see whether they would heal him. It's a setup. Um, so that they might accuse him. They wanted to heal him so they might accuse him. Um, The Pharisees knew Jesus' track record, okay? He's already been uh, famous for healing, uh, for restoring. They knew that he could do it. They knew his heart. They knew his heart of compassion for the lost and for the broken and for the diseased. And yet they saw that as their opportunity to try and skewer him again. They'd lost the previous battle in the cornfields, the battle of the cornfield. But then they had regathered again, and now it shifts to the synagogue. Because if they could get Jesus to heal this man with the withered hand, then they could prove that Jesus was working on the Sabbath. He was breaking the law, and they could dirty his name like that. But Jesus saw right through it. He said in verse 4, or verse 3, to the man with the withered hand, come here. And then he said to them in verse 4, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? He asks the question of his accusers, what is your greater duty, no matter what the day is? Your greater duty is to, to do mercy, right, on the Sabbath. is to help rather than destroy. If, if there's an opportunity to give life, you do that and save life rather than take it. That's what we should be doing on on the Sabbath, says Jesus. And again, their response uh, speaks volumes uh, because it said they were silent. He got them again. And yet Jesus looked at them and said he was angry with them and he was grieved, grieved at their hardness of heart towards him. And it said that he spoke the word, stretch out your hand. And as the man with the withered hand stretched it out, his hand was restored. Jesus spoke the word and he was restored. Jesus possesses authoritative power. He's not just a great teacher, although he is that. He's not just a brilliant theologian, although he is that. He's not just a sharp thinker and a wise debater. He has power to heal and to restore. He speaks powerful words and the thing he says happens. Be restored. And the hand is there, perfect, fully functioning. This man has his life back again. Authoritative word. Authoritative power. But thirdly, you'll see, and you've detected this already, Jesus evokes Hostility or hunger? You would think, wouldn't you, that someone with such authoritative teaching and such powerful uh, signs and wonders um, will just attract everybody. You would think that, wouldn't you? But actually, someone like that attracts hostility as well as hunger. So the hostility, as you can see, you've detected already, comes from the Pharisees, right? Um, these are the, the religious supremos. If you wanted to know uh, what it looked like to live under the law of God, uh, you would look at the Pharisees. That's what they would think in those days anyway. And on paper, you would think that the Pharisees are most w- welcoming of Jesus, because the Pharisees thought that all this law-keeping would, would simply bring the kingdom of God. If God's happy with us, you know, if we return to God with all our hearts and keep every law, then God will come to us. He will bless us. He will bring the kingdom of God and overthrow the Romans. That's what they had hoped for. And so you'd think that someone who had authority in his word and, and authority in his power um, would, would, would sync with their, their mission. You know, on paper, they should be welcoming Jesus as, as an ally And yet it seems here that the Pharisees are most oppositional to Jesus in reality. Um, The Pharisees look like they, they know the right things. They know the right things. They know it better than most people. But it is clear from their actions and their motivations that we see here that their hearts are far from God. You know, they wanted Jesus to heal so they might trip him up. They were far from God. Jesus, you see, exposes our inner motivations. And it's not pretty when he does that. Particularly for the Pharisees. They they built so much on knowing and understanding and debating and and setting the standard of the law of God that when when Jesus came along, they risked losing everything. They had their hope and their faith in their knowledge, in their practice, in their religious works, rather than in the God who created them. They'd worked hard to get to where they were. Not just anybody could be a Pharisee. It it wasn't a paid job, but it almost had to be your life, your whole life, your whole lifestyle to become a Pharisee, to earn that respect and that, um, uh, that religious credentials. And here comes Jesus into the, the situation, this uneducated man, self-taught. You know, he, he was just the son of a carpenter. He, he's not high-born. High um, he's not one of the elites of society. He's from Nazareth. I mean, I mean who, what, what, what good comes from Nazareth, was the saying in those days. And yet, Jesus comes with this brilliance, with this power and this authority, and he exposes the weakness of their system. He exposes the chink in their armor. And so they respond with hostility. They push back at Jesus. That's what people do, you see, when Jesus uncovers their hearts, when he exposes their needs, their lacks, that so they've been trying so hard to cover up and compensate for when Jesus comes such people push back. They are hostile towards him. See, Pharisees don't want Jesus to be true. They don't want him to be true because they, they, they risk losing too much if he is what he says he is. And so they refuse to recognize his authority. They deny his, his ownership of their lives. And instead they surround their hearts and their minds with these walls of of religion and walls of pride and, and insulation of knowledge so that Jesus can't, they think, get to their heart. And so when he comes to expose their hearts, they are livid, they're hostile. And this is the sad truth, folks, that I'm trying to highlight here. There is no amount of good theology or gospel preaching or astonishing teaching or rational debates. There's no amount of miracles or signs or wonders that can change some human hearts. That's not that God can't change human hearts. He very much can. But the way that he has organized and set up humanity is that you can expose someone to the best teaching the world can ever give you and the most powerful and wonderful miracles, and yet their hearts remain hardened. And we're starting to see the reason here. They will lose too much, they think, if they give their lives to Jesus. And so it says in verse 6, they can't beat him by theology and they can't beat him by powerful miracles. And so what do they do? They went out immediately, held council with the Herodians, another political group, against him about how to destroy him. That's, that's all they're left with, violence. Jesus evokes hostility. We see that. But there's this other group here we haven't examined yet so far in our study this morning. Jesus evokes Hunger. Verse 7 through to verse 12. Wonderful. Verse 7 shows in chapter 3 that Jesus withdrew from that toxic environment of the synagogue that day. And he withdrew with his disciples to the sea. That's a great idea. Anytime you're, 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 you're stuck in a toxic environment, go, go to the sea. It just brings a fresh view on whatever it is you're, you're going through when you, you look out and you see. Anyway, he went to the sea. But it says here, a great crowd followed, and the, the, these were people not just from the synagogue. Although I'm sure there were one or two who followed them around in that day, on that day. Um, but these were people who had travelled in. They travelled many miles to come and see Jesus. Um, it says there, from from uh, north of Palestine, from the south of area of Palestine, uh, from outside of Palestine. You've got this Idumea, which is sort of south of. Uh, of the, the, the region of Palestine. And you've also got Tyre and Sidon up in Syria, north of Israel, Palestine, as it was called by the Romans. People flocking in, traveling hours and hours and hours, if not days, to come and try and sit under the teaching of this amazing, authoritative leader that they're hearing so much about. The fame and influence of Jesus continued to spread all the time. And it says in verse 8, because they heard what he was doing, they came to him. These people were hungry for Jesus. And it says in verse 10, he healed many and presumably also cast out their demons. Travelling miles to get to Jesus. But what a contrast between them and the Pharisees who hung out in the cornfields with their telescopes so they could just try and catch a glimpse of some infraction or other so they might skewer Jesus. The crowds were the opposite in this scenario. They travelled for miles around, a great expense to themselves, to come and receive from Jesus, to come and hear him, to come and be exposed to his power. These were needy people we're talking about here. They were desperate people for all sorts of reasons. Unlike the Pharisees and in complete contrast to them, the crowd had nothing to lose and everything to gain by coming to Jesus. The Pharisees, on the other hand, had everything to lose and nothing to gain by coming to Jesus. The crowds recognized Jesus' authority, and so they flocked to him. They were astonished by him. They wanted Jesus to be true. In fact, they needed Jesus to be true. The Pharisees did not want Jesus to be true. The crowds heard the words. They 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 needed the power that came from Jesus. So we can see as the new wine and the old wineskins come into collision, Jesus evokes hostility and he evokes hunger. Both reactions. So as we um, cycle in and just come down in now into to today and to us, I, I just want to try Foundation Church and, and, and um, apply this in, in two ways. I think that's going to be really uh, relevant to us as a church. As we've been thinking, right, who who would think that someone with such power and authority and, 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 you know, being able to produce miraculous science, who who would think there would be such a diverse response, the lovers and the haters? And that's instructive for us. And so the first sort of application, really, of this teaching is for us as a church, for us at Foundation Church, as a community of people on mission, as we were thinking last week in our first gathering of 2021, Um, You know, this gives us a wonderful opportunity as a church to reorganize ourselves, um, to to, to refocus in our our vision, uh, to to, to catalyze gospel transformation in our city and in our nation. That's our vision. And this is a a wonderful opportunity to do that, to, to remember what we are as a church and what God has called us to. Why we do what we do as Foundation Church. But yet this teaching that we're seeing here today is so helpful for us because it's so important that as we go out on that mission to see that vision come to pass, to the glory of God, um, it's important for us to know that there is a spectrum of people out there that we're going to meet as we go out with the message of Jesus. As people respond to that message. And so the, the more we understand what's going on in this passage today, it will protect us. It will arm us against disappointment, against discouragement, and against false expectations. What I mean is this, for us as a church. If we go out and do ministry thinking that everybody out there is hostile, that is just angry against God as we go out on mission, that is just like the Pharisees you know, of our modern era, then we will go out with a defensive posture we will go out with suspicion in our minds we will possibly uh, even go out with an almost like an over aggressive gospel presentation an over belligerent aggressive presentation of god and the kingdom and perhaps our view can be informed by some extreme opinions that you might hear of or see particularly on social media People hating and, 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 you know, and, and people who are fanatical against religion of all forms. So if we allow ourselves to think that everybody's like that, that will affect the way that we view the world right? and, and, and our position as a church. But that's not the case. And we see that here. There is a spectrum. There are people like that, for sure. Do, do, we, do we dismiss them? No, absolutely not. We, we can engage in different ways. But not everybody's like that, right? There is a spectrum. Not everybody's hostile. But it goes the other way as well. Because if we think everybody is like the crowds, just willing to cross miles and miles and miles just to come to, to church, just to come to foundation, just to listen to the gospel, we would love that, right? I, I would love that. But the reality is that that's not the case for a lot of people. That may happen. Praise God. Praise God. But if we understand this, that not everybody out there is like the crowds who are just so totally hungry and just need to hear the gospel and that's it, they're saved, um, then, then that protects us also against like a, a false expectation that all people just suddenly respond en masse like a big crowd. This has happened in history, right? We, we, we see that with various revivals and stirrings of the Spirit of God. That's what we pray for when we're praying for revival in our nation, in our, in our city. Amen. And that can happen, but it's not ordinarily the case. And so if we think all people are hungry just like the crowds, then that can lead, if we're not careful, to disappointment When people don't respond in the way we want to the gospel, it can lead to disillusionment because we have this uh, overly cheery vision, I suppose. Uh, And it doesn't come to pass and we get disappointed and depressed and just thinking there's something wrong with the message. Folks, the reality is that most people that you and I will meet at work or in your family or neighbours or whatever, they're somewhere in between the spectrum. Maybe closer to one side or the other, but they're on a spectrum. So we don't need to go out with a defensiveness and an anger in our words just to take them down. Neither do we need to go out with complete naivety, just thinking that... uh, all we need to do is, is um, just speak a word and then it, it is done. Somewhere in between. But here's the encouragement. Here's the encouragement. Look at what Jesus does in this passage. Look at what he uses in his ministry. Yes, he's Jesus. Yes, he is the eternal Son of God. Yes, he has authority. He has authority in his word and authority in his power to speak and to do signs and wonders. But look at the apostles who come after him, commissioned by him. They have an authority of their word, of the message, and they have an authority in their power. They can perform signs and wonders in the name of Jesus and for his glory. But then look at the early church. And they had an authority in their message, in the word, and an authority in their power. Signs and wonders continually happened in the early church. We saw that in the book of Acts, didn't we? Uh, A year or so ago, we went through that. In fact, Jesus said moments before his ascension to the right hand of the Father, he said to his disciples, wait here. Until you receive the, the promise of the Father, you will receive power, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses. Power and message, both given to the church and to us today at Foundation Church and for every other church throughout human history. They have authority of their word and authority in their power. It doesn't reside in us, but it is in the message itself because it is the message of God for a dying and needy world. There is authority in the gospel of Jesus. There is authority in the power of Jesus at work in you. Encouragement. So that's one way that we can take this as a church. The second and final application I just want to make here is maybe more more personal, more individual. Um, Jesus evokes hostility and hunger, and he does that for you as well. He does that in you. He will do. Likewise, we as individuals, we can tend towards one side of that spectrum or another. We can tend towards, if we're not careful, the hostility end, the Pharisee end. How how may that happen for us? Why may that happen That will happen for us, for me and you, if we start to rest in a sense of pride that we know the right things and therefore other people don't know the right things. I'm not talking about people outside the church who don't know the gospel, but maybe within a church, higher and lower knowledge, you know, more more knowledge. And if we're, we, can, we can start to rest in our pride about what we know about God. Just very subtly, it can shift. Or if it's not knowledge about God, it might be performance for God. I'm doing this thing over here and you're not doing that thing over there. Therefore, I'm more favoured in the eyes of God than, than you are. We, we can start to think similar things like that. Our performance for God, our religious activities. And if we're not careful, as believers in Jesus, within the family of God, we can start to become pretty happy with ourselves for doing a very good job at building our identity and our power and our influence outside of the will of God. And before we know it, we start to move towards the hostility, Pharisee end of the spectrum. We don't really need Jesus because we're doing pretty well on our own. That's the lie that we start to believe. It might be a silent thing within our hearts. We might be unaware of it. But I tell you what, when you encounter the real Jesus, when you hear his voice speak to your heart, when it penetrates deep within, that's when you start to know that you've wandered to the Pharisee end of the spectrum. And perhaps... Like Pharisees, we can seek to undermine Jesus somehow or other. We can, we, can, we can undermine his claims, his authority over us by looking to skewer him somehow, rather like the Pharisees in the synagogue or in the, the cornfields. We can, we can look for a, a, you know, a little technicality and get him on that. And if not him, then maybe someone from within the church, like his followers. Ah, oh, you're picking ears of corn. Therefore, we can reject Jesus. You know, we can get very forensic, we can break out the magnifying glass, we can release the inner lawyer, and we can spot some infraction, uh, some little niggle, someone plucking corn, someone praying for a miracle. We can identify something minor that we don't like, something we don't agree with, and we can say, ah, now I can get out from under all this because of this little thing over here. I can absolve myself from the authority of Jesus because look at what his disciples are doing in this corner. I can cast off Jesus and his claims over my life because look at what the church does. Look at how it behaves. So on and so forth. We can be so crafty, so duplicitous in our motivations. Here's the thing, folks. Hunger for Jesus arises from our need for Jesus. If you sense that you have no need for Jesus, then you will not be hungry for Jesus. If you have no awareness of your need for Jesus, that you think you're doing pretty well on your own and he just sort of brings in a little added blessing element to your life, but otherwise you're good with God. If you start to think like that, then you start to wander into the direction of hostility You become a little more Pharisee, a little more self-sufficient, a little more proud. You see, that's that destroys community. It does havoc within the church, but also it robs Jesus of His glory. Friends, Foundation Church, brothers and sisters my encouragement to you, my exhortation to you this morning. Do whatever it takes to cultivate a hunger for Jesus. Do whatever it takes in your own life to cultivate a hunger for Jesus. I can give you suggestions, but I can't do it for you. Do whatever it takes to cultivate a hunger for Jesus. Protect yourselves against wandering in that direction of the spectrum. Whatever it takes to cultivate hunger for the things of God, the Apostle Paul says, earnestly desire his gifts. Earnestly desire God himself. Are you earnest in your desire, in your hunger? Hunger for Jesus. For you, that might be regular fasting. Uh, We we had some time of fasting and prayer as a church a few weeks ago. And I found that personally uh, very invigorating and helpful. I I find that very encouraging uh, time of, of, of my Christian walk. Maybe we need to fast more regularly if you're already doing that. Pray. Seek the Lord. Slow down the pace of life. If you're going 100 miles an hour, slow down to listen. Slow down to read, to hear the voice of God in your life. Whatever it takes to cultivate hunger for Jesus. And if you don't have a hunger, ask him for a hunger. He will give you the desire of your heart. If you say, God, I just just don't have that, that, that pull towards you and I want it, please give it to me. He will give it to you. He will give it to you. Ask for that hunger to be granted to you. Ask for him to show you your need of Jesus. Hang on to his word. Listen to his call. We have the authoritative word. We have the authoritative power. Let's use it. Amen. Let's pray.